0: Venture capital is America's innovation engine. Where venture investors deploy capital has a huge impact on which transformational ideas turn into disruptive products. Ultimately, some of these disruptive products turn out to have profound impacts on our lives. It's no secret that digital technology has been at the root of many such profound impacts over the past century. But this digital landscape invites brave new frontiers of cybersecurity problems. These frontiers co-evolve with new technologies from the internet to smartphones to internet of things devices to fleet assets like planes, trains, and tanks. We can thank venture capitalists and the entrepreneurs they back for many of these new technologies. Unsurprisingly, venture capitalists are also backing cybersecurity companies at a dizzying pace. In this episode, we invite special guests Vardhan Gattani and Jim Rutt to discuss why so much venture investment flows into cybersecurity, how investors see the shifting cybersecurity landscape, where they're excited about bold, new, transformational ideas, and the characteristics that make cybersecurity startups successful. Verdon Gatani is an investor at 645 Ventures and a former venture investor at Riot Ventures and Alicorp. Corp. Before launching his investment career, Verdon led business development for Foursquare and Estimote. Jim Rutt is the Chief Information Officer at the Dana Foundation and has 21 years of technology experience spanning financial, healthcare, and pharmaceutical sectors, and has presented at multiple CIO and leadership conferences. Jim is a venture partner at 645 Ventures, where he helps with deal sourcing and technical evaluation. Jim also serves as president and chairman of the Board of Technology Affinity Group and is vice president and board director for the New York Metro chapter of the Cloud Security Alliance. Jim Vardhan, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having us, Josh. Thanks, Josh.
0: It's great to have you on. Um, well, I thought this would be a neat episode because really talking to venture investors about things that they're excited about in different segments uh, is a peer into the future. Because when you're talking about the ideas that ultimately make it to market, those things typically require capital. And a uh, venture investor's job is to decide where to efficiently allocate that capital. And so um, I thought it would be helpful to maybe summarize Just how much cybersecurity funding has come from VCs over the past decade or even this year so far, Um, where those things are going, uh, what kind of M&A activity we see, just to set the stage uh, for a conversation about what we think the future is going to look like. So um, just this year, a couple of like statistics, Uh, over $11 billion of, of VC funding has flowed into cybersecurity companies. Um, and there were 163 m transactions totaling almost $40 billion. Uh, you know, this is proving over the past decade to be one of the most significant and uh, re- highest returning investment categories for venture firms. Um, Jim, what is driving all of this activity?
1: Well, the news certainly isn't hurting, right? I mean, the news about these constant and never-ending ransomware attacks, right? These are kind of like the one-two punch for any organization. Not only can these attacks effectively put you out of business, at least in the short term, but they also pose a significant risk in if the attacker wants to leverage that encrypted data to essentially blackmail you moving forward. I mean, it's a very pernicious level of attack, and I think a very visceral reaction from many organizations uh, screaming for some kind of control or some kind of mitigation against these. These are probably the most you know talked about and most uh, pernicious types of attacks. You know, the other areas we're talking about, these these well-advertised supply chain attacks, Um, you know, like the SolarWinds attack that just happened maybe about a month, two months ago. I think the discussions that are in the vernacular now about a software bill of materials for that, so that we have a better understanding of of the different components that are critical pieces of software, leverage, need to use, or depend upon. Uh, this conversation is probably 10 years too late, in my opinion. I think we need we need to have it now. We need to have it rapidly advanced at this point because fundamentally on the outside, you know, from a macro level, we don't really understand the different components and the vulnerabilities that are in these pieces of software. Um, and then as well as cyber physical types of attacks, and I'm sure Vardan will have a couple of comments on that as well. Um You know, the Colonial Pipeline attack, the JBS attack, um, a couple of others, critical infrastructure. Uh, You know, I think most folks are going to extrapolate these and see what's happened and what could happen in the future. You know, could critical attacks happen to our Internet infrastructure, our energy infrastructure? Very critical. And I'm glad they're finally top of mind for most organizations. So overall, these are probably the top three buckets that I see you know as constant conversation of why you know in terms of investment spend and adoption, these things are are starting to rapidly increase you know very very much so in the past few years
0: yeah so so you've got like literally millions of attacks that are going on. And a lot of these rise to the level where we're reading about them in the New York times, like CNN's reporting these things. You could see cybersecurity professionals talking about these attacks and explaining them. I mean, I, I actually had one of my uncles who's not technically literate at all. Ask me about cybersecurity. I was just like, what world are we in? Um, that this, you know, that this, we're having this conversation at a dinner table. And, and so, you know, it's certainly in public consciousness, we're done like from a Business perspective, though you know you've got uh, an enterprise that's looking at these things in the news. Like, how are they evaluating the purchase of a cybersecurity product? You know, and and like, what is the how does how does this sensation in the media translate into like a business opportunity for for cybersecurity professionals?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think there's a couple of things to think about from the buyer perspective. Right, every buying decision is obviously very personal to the enterprise that the buyer is operating out of, but there is kind of universally a new dialogue around what it means to be risk aware and also prepared from a cyber perspective. Um, and so I think there there are best practices kind of emerging across areas that have continued to be influenced by technology shifts, but there also are also our best practices that are emerging because of new interdependencies that are created through these technology shifts. So, you know, the amount of third party collaboration that's done today is nothing like it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, The the vectors have changed and and the services have changed and everyone's kind of building towards a new new future where they are capable of responding and and creating best practices within their organization. And I think as you move company to company, you see different levels of priorities for different areas of of interest and and concern. But um, universally, there's probably more attention paid now than ever before in cyber awareness.
0: And Jim, I mean, you're a career, you know, C-level executive who deals with these issues. I mean, one of the historical kind of rules of thumb I've always heard about starting businesses is, you know, from a a go-to-market perspective, selling into a profit center, you know, supporting revenue-generating activities is like – is one thing, right? If you tell somebody, hey, you buy my widget and you're going to increase your sales by 20% or your top of funnel is going to double – that's a conversation that's going to get people interested. When you're selling into a cost center, you know you're selling life insurance or you're you know these sorts of like risk mitigation things. It's a different conversation, right? Because you're you're sort of like coming out of a budget and it, it's not necessarily supporting other business activities. Yet, yet we're still seeing over the past 10 years cybersecurity being one of the b- best performing classes of investment. How do, you, how do you square these two things? Or is that just like a complete, uh, you know, a, a complete misconception that selling into a cost center is, 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 is harder?
1: Well, you know, Josh, it's a fortuitous type of question, especially now for this time. I think most organizations, as you alluded to, see cyber as just another kind of risk, right? Everybody's got fiduciary risk, operational risk. Now we've got cyber risk. What's the difference? Most sea level organization, most sea level. Uh, Groups in in the respective organizations have little to no subject matter expertise about cyber risk. They know about the fiduciary and they know about the operational because that's what they've been doing for the past 20, 30 years. This new risk that's come on hot and heavy, nobody really has the technical subject matter expertise to really identify those elements that are truly going to be able to reduce risk to an acceptable level to the organization. So, in terms of selling into the organization, um, you know, I think most C-level or operational steering committees look first and foremost to how what's the easiest way to transfer that level of risk. What's the best way? Cyber insurance. Now, why I say that question is very fortuitous for our time now is it used to be relatively easy to be able to get a policy underwritten for cyber insurance just in the past six, nine, 12 months, let's call it, with the avalanche of ransomware attacks and the amount of claims associated with those. I think you're going to see a very tightening, big tightening of standards in order to be able to even be able to, uh, Uh, um, either afford or be eligible for these types of insurance, uh, policies. So what does that mean? Ultimately, it's going to force the burden on these organizations to be able to build a solid cybersecurity program, or at least if they had one of any type to fortify it. And what does that mean? A tremendous opportunity for both tool risk, uh, like governance and risk programs related to cyber, uh, to fill those gaps in, in, in organizations, uh, you know, risk profile. So I think even though it seems like it's accelerated quite a bit, as you alluded to over the past few months or past few years, I see in the next couple of years, we even go hockey stick a little bit more from that perspective, because it's no easy way to do a push button risk transference. Like we've been able to for the past few years.
0: Yeah. And I mean, some of the magnitudes of the, of the payouts, um, you know, just just the transaction itself, uh, paying the ransomware had been really significant. I mean, I think there were multi-million dollar payouts this year uh from 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 several of the victims and and probably a lot more that we don't even hear about. They just sort of go away quietly, right? Um I mean I remember when the this the Sony attacks the North Korean attacks on Sony happened that had a very materially different feel to me because that was like a government that was you know attacking a private company and caused really significant damage not just you know operationally their you know they l- loss and uh, of, of data and their inability to do their sort of Core business, uh, but also just reputationally. Um, I mean, I know a number of a number of people who actually got poached out of like government positions to go work for Sony on the Red Team because they, you know, they were making such significant investments. Um, yeah, and I think you know evaluating the cost of the downside is something that's really hard to do for for a company, and that's reflected in how hard it is for insurance companies to underwrite these things. Right? Um, you know how do you how do you measure cyber risk, especially given that there's so much sort of um, residual risk, like the correlation between the pool of, of assets that you're underwriting is is pretty significant. If like some zero day comes out in the Windows kernel, and you've got you know like a hundred hundred thousand infections of of whatever Outlook server or whatever, um, now now it's just like oh my gosh, like the tail you know the tail was really fat here on this on this outcome. So I, I think there's a lot of work to do there. Um, so obviously transferring the risk is one thing, but Verdon, there you know there are cybersecurity professionals that are delivering products and sort of security control measures across like a wide range of um, of, of of places. I mean, you've got uh, at least you know there are probably infinite ways to slice this this up. But like, how do you see when you you know when you're investing deal flow, uh, you're, you're you're assessing deal flow as as an investor? Like, what are some of the categorizations you use when you're evaluating? someone says, hey, I've got this really hot cybersecurity startup that's, that's forming, Like, you should definitely take a look. Like, what are some of the ways that you, you assign attributes to those, to, those, um, to those companies?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. The, the field of cybersecurity has a lot of uh, bleeding kind of subcategories, I would say, uh, and they bleed into each other for the right reasons, which is usually just a, a digital interconnectedness between them. I think there's kind of your classic areas of endpoint security, network security, Um, app security, et cetera, that instead of going away, just continue to evolve. And so what we really try to stay on top of, um, you know, putting my investor hat on is what are the pertinent evolutions, whether it be in the underlying technologies that are changing kind of the the surfaces for attack or the behaviors, right, associated with either digital professionals or just users in general um, in a digital age where there's kind of a requirement for uh, a new generation of products to kind of answer the call. Um, So I I would say more often than not, we're not necessarily looking to um, reinvent a category, although that does occasionally happen. It's really the insight that typically will come from the founder around, hey, here's why this prior behavior and this prior product will no longer serve us in the future. Um, And and those insights are really what I think would excite any investor, um, as well as any buyer, right? I think if you are close to your customer and you continue to build for a set of customer problems that are pertinent and, and potentially immediate, um, you'll you'll continue to kind of see real gravitational
0: pull. And then, I mean, that seems like a through line with so many kinds of early stage startups and, and founding team compositions, right? Is like you have somebody who's either felt the pain of like a particular problem or they've been sort of feeling the pulse of a particular market segment for a while. and they just they they intuitively know where the puck is moving. Um, and then they just sort of say, "Hey, look, there's an opportunity here to to really transform the way that people are thinking about this, or people don't know this is a problem yet." And I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna let them know it's a problem, and then also offer kind of a better a better way forward. Um, so I, I really that 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 definitely resonates with me, and I think cybersecurity is really really no different. Um, <clears throat> what's interesting to me about cybersecurity as as a, a segment is that it's so directly correlated with digital transformations and the way that people use technology, right? Because like by definition, cybersecurity is like securing cyber stuff. And um, so that cyber stuff is like, you know, where, where are those, like how are we as a society accreting digital approaches to things into our daily lives? So I think you see innovations happening, whether that's AI or it's the digitization of like aging industries, or it's a new way of working where we're working in a distributed way, or, you know, Amazon has extra capacity from its holiday, you know, um, surge use for its servers. And it decides to rent those things out to, to other people. And that becomes the way that we run the internet with Amazon web services, all of these like innovations um, solve problems, and then they create other ones. They create security problems that now us cybersecurity professionals have to deal with um, on, on 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 a daily basis. So, Jim, given you, you've seen these narrative arcs play out over over decades, like where do you see some of the interesting landscapes opening up um, from a cybersecurity perspective?
1: So. You know, we've talked in general about some of the buckets of some of these solutions, and a lot of them have been around for quite some time. Some, in some cases, 20 to 25 years. Especially when we're talking about general network security, uh, identity, and things of that nature. Uh, I think we have to kind of come back to the to the source, for lack of a better term. An interesting area that I'm seeing. Uh, products kind of uh, gravitate towards or or at least have some element in their offerings is an area called attack surface management at, um, as a standalone, though. It's a standalone product area because ultimately your risk is almost wholly determined by what areas of your respective organization are attackable or, disab- you know, or being able to be disabled. That's a big area of risk, right? We think about uh, business continuity, you talk about disaster recovery, and you talk about outages and, and the like, uh, to be able to reduce or de-abstract your environment to the least amount of artifacts that could be possibly brought down or disabled. I mean, that's a significant uh, piece of your, of anybody's, uh, cyber plan. I mean, and recovery plan by, by, uh, by extension. Uh, so this, I've seen a lot of the the products come to market that have some element of this, uh, I think eventually this has to be its own little area uh, because it's so tied to risk and it's the pain that's felt by most CISOs. You had mentioned, you know, most founders are looking for that pain that maybe they felt or maybe they're able to identify, you know, a couple years down the road or a year down the road when they can build a product to kind of match that, that pain. You know, my take on, on kind of that area is having worked with many cyber founders advising you know dozens of them, is you not only have to identify a pain, you have to elevate that pain so that it's commonly felt across the spectrum of CISOs in most sectors. Otherwise, you have to take kind of the look uh, from the CISOs perspective. They are getting inundated with so many different products and different promises, et cetera. They want something that's going to resonate with what is important to them, and if not even on their radar, they want to see why that it should be risen up in the risk uh, on the risk register for them. Uh, so if I were to take one discrete area, attack surface management would, would be a very interesting place for for would be founders for founders to kind of focus on and see if they can create something that's that's kind of a you know an offering that's truly unique past the you know I would say the fractional offerings that we're seeing out there.
0: Great. And, and Verdun, you know, from a, uh, from an investor perspective, you know, as you're putting together a fund, you know, you have a different thesis about like, well, you know, what is your, what is the thing you know about the world that, uh, that isn't commonly acknowledged and, and how are you going to get outsized returns based on that, on that knowledge, right? And, and I've seen a lot of really interesting approaches to how these fund sort of um, placement memos look, and and they can be sort of vertical specific saying, hey, look, I think, additive manufacturing is going to be a massive business like these are the reasons why this is an exploding sector we're going to find the best deals in these in this space and we're going to ride this like sort of segment specific wave to victory um or there are sort of cross cutting things right where you you see Transformations happening in that that cr- cut across segments. Kind of, Jim, you were mentioning that you know, cyber security concerns that cut across segments tend to be really, really, um, really interesting. You know, uh, Verdant, maybe you could talk a little bit about at six four five some of how you're thinking about your inv- investment thesis, and then how does that overlay on top of cybersecurity as a segment? You
2: no, know, I, I think um, a, a great way to kind of frame this is thinking about a recent cybersecurity investment that we made o- outside of our investment in Shift um, So. A company um, that comes to mind is ORT, which is uh, an innovator in the identity um, security space that is really taking zero trust to a new level, partially because of a technology change, but also because of behavioral change. So, um, I mentioned before, you know, a lot of categories kind of continue to evolve. Uh, an evolution kind of ahead of ORT was the rise of Zscaler, right? Like, essentially creating a new cloud-first approach to a category, right, which essentially was required as more and more folks adopted cloud as you kind of needed cloud as a delivery mechanism. Um, what got us particularly excited about or wasn't necessarily like a, a very deep, deep thesis that we were seeking in the market, but rather an understanding that there are additional changes that are occurring that will kind of continue to expand the surface of potential... Intrusions that could occur on network or, in this case, obviously, um, with third parties. So what Ort realized was there was kind of an additional collaboration um, that was happening across organizations where third-party players were essential to, you know, to Jim's point, just like business as usual and kind of everyday operations. And recognizing that, you, you kind of need to think about how you approach security from a very open, environment perspective, right? Like how are you actually controlling the access of individuals at a much deeper level than just, hey, they're a network, right? Um, and, and so the, the, the thesis really that kind of emboldened our decision-making here was totally due to Matt Caulfield, the, the founder of Org, um, seeing this kind of firsthand, uh, you know, it, he's been an, operation, an operator in the space for, for years and years on end. Um, especially on the innovation side, and then us being able to validate that thinking, not only with early design partners that he was seeking, but also with kind of folks in the network who were inevitably kind of going through these pain points and feeling them in real time. Um, And and so it was more a connection of a founder insight that came from the, the earned secret that came from his work in the space and then moved to... Um, us validating that with what we were hearing from potential buyers in the market, what we were hearing from um, potential champions in the market as well.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that um, I think we're hearing here is that there's a lot of focus on how enterprises are um, evolving and then what needs enterprises have from a cybersecurity perspective, something that's been kind of an unstated assumption. In a lot of what we've been talking about is that, you know, the enterprise is the customer and, um, there are many other, you know, many other entities that, that startups sell to. Um, I think the government is, is one that, um, in, in some ways is very similar to an enterprise, like the, 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 the sort of go-to-market strategy has a lot more similarity to, you know, sort of sales heavy, big deals kind of thing. Um... But consumers are, are a huge part of of um, the sort of target demographic for for startups and. Um consumers use a lot of electronics, you know, and consumers are also, um, liable, uh, to, to get attacked. Um, and, and maybe they don't, uh, reach as much sensational news coverage, but, you know, regularly people are getting ransomware and, and, um, having documents, embarrassing photos sort of extorted and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, is there a significant growth potential for cybersecurity, um, uh, Startups to be servicing sort of smaller buyers, um, whether that's a consumer sort of at an extreme end. You know, people have always bought antivirus and 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 these sorts of things. But is there is there um, you know and and sort of like identity um, protection and that sort of thing? Uh, Are there opportunities in that space? Um, And then sort of as a follow on to that, I mean, maybe small and medium sized companies that you know you've got a twenty person shop that's like they cannot deal with the overhead of hiring a CISO, right? Um, you know, are there, are there opportunities in those spaces for, for significant growth?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's interesting question. I do advise a, a company that has more B2C focus called Pixum, And what they do is it's kind of like an anti-phishing tool, browser-based for end users, right? But they're more consumer-based. Now, when we talk about digital transformation and kind of the confluence of some of these things, it's very interesting. I talked earlier about the, de-abstraction of a lot of elements in these organizations and how I feel that's going to be critical to an attack surface management, um, good attack surface management, uh, posture. So as we're seeing more and more folks go remote, you know, from the pandemic and otherwise, you know, the, the infusion of digital components and et cetera, um, You're going to see a lot more of the consumerization of previously uh, corporate-owned assets, which is kind of happening now. I see an acceleration of that moving forward as more organizations adopt hybrid situations. And that that will kind of lead to almost like a bleed-over effect where folks are going to start making individualized decisions about – The controls or the protections that they'll need for these devices that they're using in a hybrid to a personal area—it's—it's definitely, in my opinion, still a blue ocean of opportunity right now. Uh, I think you know where there are disadvantages. In, you know, the overhead costs, you know, in terms of trying to market these solutions to a wider frame of decision makers versus, uh, you know, the red tape you might have to go through when you're selling the enterprise, they're kind of offsetting. I, but there obviously has not been that much focus in the, in the consumer side, Josh, for the reasons that you just described, because, you know, the big hits are still in the government, in corporate you know, you hit, a, you hit a big sale or you hit a few of them, uh, it definitely leads to the next funding round and a lot quicker momentum.
2: Yeah. I, I would add just a, a couple of things to Jim's great explanation. I, I think there's, you know, an education gap, right, for, for most consumers where there there isn't really a, a strong understanding of what a, a cybersecurity posture for the self or, or for an individual even really means. Um, and so I think a lot of the early outside of everything mentioned around kind of, you know, the Mac v generation, like a lot of the early uh, instances of like consumer cybersecurity is really tied to like data security. Um, and in this case, like what can you actually do to protect the data that I am generating and that you are inevitably making money and products off of. Right. And, and I think obviously regulatory influences have kind of come in here to create, you know, everything from frameworks like SOC 2, but also just like, large sweeping kind of uh, mandates for, for companies kind of handling data of this sort. But um, it does seem that everything's kind of pushed to the product builders and owners as corporations rather than any onus being placed on the individual. I, I'm sure that education gap has something to do with it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting observation. Um, and, and I think – I really like the idea that these things are bleeding together because, you know, especially with the, the the sort of remote acceleration of the workforce with COVID, you've got basically there's no perimeter anymore. You know, you, you your your employees are working from home, your your services are sort of distributed across cloud offerings, third party services, on prem. Um, you know, I think this is why you're seeing such a like um, an explosion in the zero trust type of uh, type of uh, stuff. But that's a pretty pessimistic view. Right. And I think like, um, you know, the concern that I plugged some, you know, cheap third party device onto my home network and I'm sort of cohabitating that home network with my work laptop. um, Lots of problems can happen there. and, And I feel like there's we need to Figure out as a cybersecurity community how to build compelling sort of business cases around securing that other you know that whole other ecosystem um, in in an interesting way. And I, I agree. I think it's like a totally blue ocean at this point. Um, one kind of other while we're on the subject of pessimism, uh, one other <laughs> pessimistic view is that you know look like uh, we've gotten to the point where. There's really significantly improved cybersecurity posture in a lot of the products that we buy. I mean, just like looking at my iPhone, right? If I were able, if I were able to find um, an exploit chain that got me from sending someone a text message to rooting their phone, that's worth millions of dollars. On, on the gray market, right? Like that—that that, that kind of Herculean effort is worth more money than most people make in in, in in multiple lifetimes, right? And so, so that's a reflection. That pricing, I think, is a reflection of of cybersecurity really having been raised in some ecosystems. I will say, disconcertingly, there are certain assets that you know um, that, that Shift Five is looking at that that are maybe not don't 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 share that high bar. But um, you know, that, I think that's a reflection of a tremendous amount of work and effort to secure these devices. Uh, we talked about a really tremendous amount of money going into uh, products, uh, and, 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 startups that are building cybersecurity, um, uh, and, and trying to make things more secure, but we're still seeing a ton of attacks and there's like, just like, it, it seems like there's just an acceleration in these things rather than an attenuation. And I think there are a wide, you know, there's a lot of facets to, to, to why that could be, but I thought maybe it would be helpful to explore that space for a little bit. So, um, you know, I guess the first question is: Are enterprises not spending enough, um, or or are the the attackers getting more sophisticated, or a confluence of these factors? Jim, what do you think is driving the the sort of twin accelerations of spending and attacks?
1: Yeah, so I think they're certainly spending enough on tools, and if they're not, it's not the biggest encumbrance that they're they're coming up against. I think you need a concomitant increase in spend in educating your end users. You know, it's kind of a funny analogy I use all the time, but it is true. You know, you, you, most states you need a license to cut somebody's hair, but you don't need a license to sit them in front of this eight hundred to a thousand dollar computer and let them go at it, and, and not understanding the total amount of risk or havoc that the, these end users can can wreak on your organization. Uh, and yet, you know, the education is limited to phishing testing or some other nature. I think. There has to be a more fundamental approach, Can common, in again, with the spend and the application of the tools that we see on the marketplace, into bringing folks into the understanding that they are part of the defense of their respective organizations.
0: Yeah, I think training is, is a huge part of it, Jim. You know, I think like we spent a lot of time engineering more secure software and more secure products to the point now where, you know, in my previous life as, as a sort of offensive cyber professional, it was so much easier to steal credentials from somebody and then masquerade as them than it was to try to, you know, figure out how to subvert some complex piece of software and 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 tease it into doing the things that I wanted to do. So I think training is a, is a huge part of it, and making that training effective and meaningful and fun, and not distracting from 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 the the sort of day job that people have. You know, they're 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 not cybersecurity professionals first. That is part of an overall job description. Um, Verdun, how how do you see um, you know this co-evolution of spending and 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 attacks? Like, what are some some what are some of the aspects? that you you see or what do you ascribe to that uh, that phenomenon
2: yeah i mean i I think the fields are definitely tied and they're growing rightfully so um i think the digital literacy even just as a as a a concept has just completely evolved in the past 10 20 years um so it's no surprise that there are more bad actors out there uh first and foremost and then of course usage is you know whether it's transformation at the enterprise level or or just like Take a look at any consumer's kind of daily life today versus where they were 10 or 15 years ago. Um, you know, the, the exposure to which folks are now participating in areas where cyber is a real concern is kind of unprecedented. Like even just thinking through any, in, in any domain, really, like the the devices we touch, the, the networks we touch, um, it all kind of relates to a, a continuous push towards, you know, Access in, in every kind of domain of our lives, and also just changes in the way we interact with each other and behave as uh, as humans. So I think, um, you know, whether folks are spending enough, I, it's definitely kind of a a company um, a company by company question. But I think for for the whole, um, you would be you would be foolish to not assume that attacks tax will continue to uh, to increase.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if history is any guide, it's it's always a Tom and Jerry game, right? Like defenders patch a hole and then attackers find a new way to sort of do it. And as long as it's going to, there's a lucrative outcome at the end of that you're going to have you know criminals and 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 you know advanced persistent threats that are going to try to find a way in and unfortunately we have you know some pretty bright people that have you know dedicated their 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 careers to doing these sorts of things um and you know i think that the 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 challenge is figuring out how to stay ahead of the attackers and 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 incur costs at every step of the way so that you can once they invariably find a way in, you can figure out ways of mitigating that damage, um, and hopefully we can get to a place where, you know, it's just it's not worth the the time, you know, to 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 find the way in. Um, I, you know, while I have two invest investment professionals uh, on 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 the line as a as an entrepreneur myself, um, and and I think you know a lot of folks that that listen, um, you know, come come at this from an operating perspective. Uh, what are you know? There's obviously a trove of information for early stage startups and and founders that are thinking about starting a company, on like, you know, best practices for how you put an idea together, how you sort of establish product market fit, how you scale companies, and. Um, those are really transcendent concepts across a wide range of of, of segments that you you go after and and, and customers that you're you're trying to um, access. Are there any specific kinds of uh, either admonitions or or advice that, that you have for um, founders that are working in the cybersecurity space? Are there are there, are there peculiarities to working in cybersecurity um, that 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 you know founders should 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 take heed of?
2: One thing that's kind of interesting is because of the uh, domain knowledge that is typically required to build cybersecurity products, efficacious cybersecurity products, um, you typically see veterans of the space being first movers as it relates to being founders or early employees of startups. And so oftentimes as an investor, you're really looking at the insights that they've had from their prior experiences um, and as especially as it relates to what they're building, uh, moving in the future. So I I think first and foremost, we're, we're almost always looking at what that is. And if you're a founder, I think you should do that deep thought exercise yourself and really figure out where your advantages lie, what insights might differentiate you from the status quo and how you see that need evolving. I think the second piece is really, um, you know, understanding your customer and your market, right? And that, I think, is not just like a, a Gartner report on market size, uh, not, not to knock Gardner in any way. It's, it's much more of a, you know, what is the nuance around the timing of the need that I'm building for or the problem that I'm trying to solve? And how is that potentially going to change um, in the next 12 months, 24 months, or even 10 years? And I I think a lot of founders tend to um, be credibly talented and focused in certain areas, but not necessarily take the time to actually like think about the difference in how those things could evolve. Um, and so what we, we love when founders have done that thinking, it, it always makes for a more interesting conversation. And one of the best ways to do it is really to stay close to customers, right? Whether they be design partners, formal, like informal, paid, unpaid. Um, folks will typically lead you to insights, um, but also knowing how to be focused and true to your vision versus only doing what customers might say is relevant to you, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act. But it's, yeah. it's definitely something that is um, you know I- increasingly uh, happening. We're seeing more and more well-educated founders kind of come to bear.
1: Yeah, so I'd mentioned a few things, and I think Vardan touched on them as well, like highlighting and and elevating the pain. But also, one overlooked item, especially when you're coming to actual product design and when the rubber meets the road, is to reduce the adoption friction for all these organizations. A lot of times, we'll see some pretty unique solutions, at least you know on the surface. But to actually be able to adopt them, there is this assumption from the, from the startup side that the resources that they'll need on the client or the uh, design partner side are much more than the, those folks are willing to commit to to adopting that solution. And I think by deabstract a continual iteration of de-abstracting a product down to its most easily adoptable fit uh, has a real... Uh, real value in, in, in the market. And I've seen that personally where I've adopted products at the very early stage, seed series A, where these folks understood that our time is valuable, but we still have that pain and we don't want to spend a lot of time you know, dealing with the just the installa- the installation, the adoption, or the configuration of what you're proposing to sell, and I think that's under a lot of times that's underlooked, and I think some folks are starting to get the message, but it's one we still have to keep promulgating amongst these founders.
0: Yeah, that that makes so much sense, I, and I think like um, it would also be potentially really interesting to explore. If you know, say say someone meets this target demographic that we're talking about, you know, you've got someone who's operated in a SOC for years, who's or who's taken like, you know, an important part of a of, of a CISO's sort of sphere of responsibility, um, or or has worked in IT for a long time and has like seen this perennial problem over and over and over again, and they have this sort of itch to do something entrepreneurial and and, and potentially start a company. How does how does one go from that position of knowing a lot about a problem space, having some sort of ideas about potential solutions, knowing the customer very well, having some relationships, and potentially even some some folks around them that are excited about starting a company? How do they go from that space to you know closing a, a seed round with 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 a with a firm like Six Four Five? What does that look like? It's a great question. Yeah, I mean,
2: I think. The most important thing is dedication, right? And and that can take uh, a bunch of different formats. I would say the the obvious one is kind of real focus on on a problem, real focus on how your product solves that problem, and real focus on who you're solving for. Um, but really, just like you know, being willing to actually start to go after it. it it's rare that. I would say we talk to folks who are in existing companies in kind of other non-founder roles uh, about what they would start. It's much more common where we were actually seeing folks who have taken the leap of faith themselves to say, I- I've done my homework. I'm such a big believer or we, if it's a team, are such big believers in what we're building that we're going to dedicate our lives to this. We're going to take all the risks that come with being a founder. Um, and. and you know, do our best to actually make this thing a reality. And that isn't an easy thing to do, you know, and it's not a a decision that should be made lightly. Um, You know, there's, there's plenty of risks associated with startups. I think everyone's very aware of that. And and the folks that tend to um, really dedicate themselves tend to be people who are really trying to, you know, be co-conspirators and, and, create a new future. And and that's, you know, probably step one, I would say, but Jim, please would love your thoughts as well.
1: I love the dedication aspect that you talked about. You kind of tying that on as well is, you know, like any other endeavor or any other, uh, solution that you may have for a problem, you have to test a hypothesis, right? Most founders or would be founders understand that. I think where they don't understand is is your sample set large enough and wide enough? A lot of folks, or a lot of founders, a lot of early stage folks I speak to say, Well, yeah, we've seen this pain out in the marketplace. So I ask them, How, how do you know that? Well, we've talked to our closest four or five friends. Not enough. You need to make sure you get that large sample size. I usually recommend upwards of 150 conversations with folks to make sure you're getting similar messaging back or response or whatever, to make sure that you don't have to hone your hypothesis too deeply in order to make sure you've got a viable product uh, roadmap moving forward. And of course, that's going to evolve over the long term as you get into later funding rounds, as the overall macro market changes. But that's the biggest area that we try to help our founders with as well, you know, whenever I'm advising a startup, along with the marketing and, and other areas that are pretty, pretty well known.
0: Right. Uh, really good advice. Uh, other kind of thing that seems pretty opaque to folks that are thinking about, you know, an idea or a problem that they're seeing and wondering whether they could start a company and raise venture – is um you know what is a venture backable idea? Because I think there are there's so many um there's a lot of attention on venture obviously because the outcomes can be so sensational, which is kind of the feature of of, of venture investing, right? Um, but there's you know if 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 you're thinking about ideas that warrant um. Investment at such an early stage and all of the risks that are, you know, attendant to that kind of an investment. You've got everything from investing in public markets, which is, you know, ostensibly much less risky, to sort of much larger, more established companies where you're, you're, you know, private equity looking at like a, a three to five x return, sort of, uh, you know, um, but still risks associated with that. To you know, a a couple of people and an idea and a dream in the back of a napkin and maybe some conversations, you know, um, that's, you know, there's, there's, there's really significant risks there. And I think maybe one of the misconceptions is that there's a, you know, every idea is venture backable and, um, but there's really actually like kind of a narrow scope of, of ideas that fit the bill for, for what, what a venture investment, um, is looking for. Burdon, can you give me a sense of, you know, whether it's in the context of cybersecurity or not, just like, what are some of the the you know what is the like spectrum of outcomes you're looking for as an investor but also like what are some of the key ingredients or the signals that you're looking for in an investment opportunity that give you the the conviction that it could reach those outcomes
2: i would say that the kind of underlying theme across all venture investments is you are betting on an upside Or a a future that is commensurate with the amount of risk that you're taking uh, at the stage of investment. And that upside can take a variety of different formats as it relates to the timing of the upside and what have you. But what you're really trying to do is swing for the fences at something that you believe you are qualified to actually create. And and that's typically the impetus for an investor backing uh, you on that journey. I think the. Other thing to to consider is, like, there are ways that folks see the future that are completely unique, right? And and knowing, um, you know, the future is never possible, but having that unique insight is pretty rare. And being able to back a company that's attempting to change a future is really powerful. Um, but it's a, it's a journey, right? It, it, it's nothing that happens overnight and you're typically looking at it as such as an investor, right? We, we consider every relationship, um, every investment relationship to be a long-term partnership, uh, especially where we invest, which is that, you know, the Series C or, or the Series A. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a real partnership. So taking those things seriously, I think, is, is always really important
0: and Jim you know you're a, you're a venture partner at 645 which is um like a really interesting flavor of of uh of involvement with a venture firm can you tell us a little bit about what that role entails um and uh, and then kind of correlated with that how you interact with uh, prospective companies that are looking for an investment from six four five and 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 um, you know portfolio companies that have have received investment from six four five and are are looking for for help certainly in growing
1: certainly so I you know the main areas that I that I operate for six four five are basically a couple of buckets so one I uh, actively scout for new deals Primarily in cyber, some in peripheral areas, but mostly to find those unique areas which we've kind of all talked about different elements of that would be appropriate for investment, especially given the thesis of 645. And I think the other area is doing things like we're doing now, talking about these things in conjunction with with the investment partners there. Uh, advising them on what we're seeing in the marketplace, advising them on shifts that are noticeable, uh, other investment theses around cyber that may be new and emerging, uh, maybe a new uh, development within existing infrastructures of organizations that may bring to light some new area which we could look for investments, etc., it's very, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, over the years having talked to all these different organizations, you can kind of start to see shifts probably a little bit before they actually materialize. So, you know, all in all it all kind of adds together into an area where you get a lot of these conversations where you got a lot of inbound requests From my time to your, your question about, you know, folks coming to us looking you know, for, for a meeting or for a possible investment Uh, most of the time I'll do the initial vetting of that, that company uh, to see if it's truly uh, fits in with the thesis. Number one, that's kind of the top cut. And then also talking about some of the areas that, uh, you know, of advice from a high level that I give to the uh, to the organizations that I have a, a official advisory position, which with, which is you know, differentiation, how's your go to market? Have you gotten any kind of proof of this or proof of value that can be demonstrated? Uh, who else have you talked to and, and the like? So it's a lot of conversations. It's a lot of information and trying to build it together and to see if it's going to fit through that funnel. Uh, and as you can imagine, especially now with the wide amount, with the large amount of money that's being invested in cyber, there's a lot of would-be entrance and entrance into the market. So it's a lot of vetting.
0: And um, supposing that uh, you 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 don't have enough at the top of that funnel, and um, someone who's listening uh, wants to have a conversation with six four five, um, how how can they learn more about the firm? And you know what does the process look like for uh, for for an entrepreneur who's looking for venture financing to to talk to the investment team?
2: Yeah, I I can take that one, Jim. I mean. It, it typically comes from a warm introduction, so reaching out through someone that um, we know, but learning about our, our firm, our, our stance and our process is just as easy as kind of just going onto our website and reading uh, reading for a bit. You can kind of see other companies we've backed, things that we've written, um, and, and get exposure, even through mediums like this, right? Podcasts that we've recorded, or panels we've sat on that were recorded about how we're thinking about certain things in the area. Um, but I, I think, you know, just reaching out, you know, whether that's warm or cold, obviously it, it always helps to have the, uh, the warm introduction. But we take, you know, we look through everything that hits our inbox and we take it all very seriously. So uh, I would say just not being shy and, and reaching
0: out to us.
1: I would echo that. <laughs>
0: awesome. Well, uh, Verdan, Jim, this has been a, a fantastic conversation and I think a really unique lens on um, emerging areas of cybersecurity. I appreciate you taking the time out and I hope you have you on again really soon. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.